At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Two giants of American history who radically changed the course of our nation in their fight to end slavery are subjects of two recent documentaries from PBS. Later this hour, we'll hear how filmmaker Stanley Nelson brings further contemporary understanding to Harriet Tubman, visions of freedom, and becoming Frederick Douglass. First, as a girl, Zaria Ware loved history and art museums, but over the years, the gnawing question, where do I fit in, screamed louder within her. She has since found many examples of inclusive art, from medieval Germany to Victorian England and beyond. Images that comprise her recent book, Black Art, the audacious legacy of black artists and models in Western art. The poet and author joins me now via Zoom. Zaria Ware, welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. In this section titled The Models, Looking Behind the Dystopian Curtain, you write that people of color have always been there, but judging by the lack of representation in art, TV, movies, novels, textbooks, it would seem as if black people didn't exist until appearing out of thin air for the transatlantic slave trade to begin. How does this book disprove that inaccuracy? So like you mentioned, um, in my childhood, I grew up loving history and reading about the Titanic or the Hindenburg. I'm reading about medieval kings and all of these histories really called to me. But I always saw that there were gaps in those histories because in school, your first really impression of Black history is always in reality a a very negative one, usually about the transatlantic slave trade um, and of course the civil rights movement. But I, I always wondered in the back of my head, is there more history to, to, to find about Black people in the world? And so when I started doing the research for Black art, it was amazing to me, the hundreds and thousands of amazing stories of Black people around the world, um, like you mentioned, from medieval Germany to Victorian England. And so with seven sections in part one, the models, I wanted to take the reader on a journey to see that Black history really is world history, to see that in all of the stories that we know and love, whether that was in medieval times or in Victorian England, Black people would have been there, sometimes at the forefront and sometimes at the background, but they would still have been there. Yeah, and this brings to light the erasure that occurred and and underscores how important the kind of research you are doing that you have done, it just brings home the importance of this part of our collective history. 
Would you explain how people of color have been integral parts of the Western art world since its beginning? Of course. So I start off with the section Holier Than Thouist, um, which is a playoff of, of course, modern lingo. And it details how a Black figure, Balthazar, became an integral part to Western culture in medieval times. So uh, the adoration of the Magi was a, a theme, a very popular theme in, in medieval times and Renaissance times, which depicted the story of the three men visiting uh, the baby Jesus. And during the medieval age, one of the figures became an African man. They started to depict him as an African man. And so in tapestries and hundreds of uh, paintings around the world, you see this figure, Balthazar. And so in, what, in that way, he uh, sort of shaped the beginnings of, of religious art in that way with the adoration of the Magi. And then further on, um, we see with Where Art Thou, Waldo, one of the other sections, which shows, you know, the background of some of the little young Black boys that are um, very common in European art in the 17th and 18th century. Um, and also in section Amsterdam, Amsterdam, it shows how Black figures really were a part of the Dutch Golden Age. And the fact that Rembrandt himself, one of, you know, the most famous artists in the world of, of all time, really, painted and depicted Black figures and Black people who were his neighbors. So throughout time, Black people have been popular choices to pose as models, and then also in the imaginative or the imaginary space of, of certain artists. But in many cases, Black people were in turbans, Orientalism, and pumpkin spice lattes, that section, they were sought <laughs> out by, by artists in the 19th century century because exoticism, quote unquote exoticism, was very popular. And so we see the humanity behind a lot of these figures, despite the fact that in many of these time periods, the transatlantic slave trade had started to take hold. We still see that many artists were willing to depict Black people in a very kind or positive way, unlike what we're used to seeing today. Yeah. And, and going back to the Middle Ages, which is not something I'd necessarily want to do, mind you. <laughs> Returning to the Middle Ages in your book, you point out that people of every practical shade, language, and religion were interacting at various levels. It's fascinating, as you bring out, to see how European art reflects that reality during medieval times. So the erasure doesn't really begin until the transatlantic slave trade. Well, we see largely the erasure began because, you know, of course, the enslavers wanted to create the impression that Black people or Black history didn't really exist, that Blackness had nothing to contribute to the world stage other than just enslavement. And so we start to see in the 17th century, in the 18th century, more racialized portraiture, trying to, you know, of course, degrade the Black figure. Of course, in the U.S. as well, we see after the Civil War, after Recon the Reconstruction era, the KKK and many white supremacists also joined this effort of creating many of the, the of course, the horrible racial memorabilia that we, we all know today, such as the Sambo figure, blackface. All of that largely started to keep this idea that Black people have nothing to offer. And so all of these histories that are a part of Black art really were pushed under the rug, ignored. And when we think about academic study, many academics refuse to acknowledge Black history, refuse to centralize Black history. And so as the years continued on, eventually the idea or even the facts or the truth that um, Black people were royalty, were kings, queens, were inventors. The fact that African kingdoms, such as the Congo, uh, King of the Congo, would send ambassadors and envoys to Portugal, to Europe. The fact that there was an exchange from, from both ends. All of those ideas were completely destroyed and omitted 
so we could have this idea that, of course, has taken hold today, unfortunately, that there really isn't much to say. We all kind of know what Black history is, when in reality, we don't even know the half of it. The frame has been minimized or it's been closeted. Black history really has been put into a box, when in reality, there are just millions or thousands of uh, amazing stories that deserve to be told. And we see with Carter G. Woodson, when he started Negro History Week in 1925, which of course became Black History Month, it was with the intent of having all of these histories put into the mainstream curriculum, not just for a month, not just for a week, but for all time. Because he also was fighting against this idea, having people tell him that Black history has nothing to offer and that it, it's a waste of time. Mm. As far back as the 12th century, you write, African musicians were a part of Europe's courts. Please tell us about John Blank. Yes, he's one of my favorite, I don't want to say characters, but favorite figures in the book. So John Blanc was a trumpeter in the court of King Henry VII and then later King Henry VIII, which we all know and have a love-hate relationship with because he has great story potential. There are hundreds of movies about him because he's the one who loved to kill people. He killed two of his wives, so he makes for excellent story father. So John Blanc actually was a part of the court of uh, King Henry VIII, um, and he was a, a trumpeter. And one of the funniest stories about him is that once one of the trumpeters passed away, unfortunately, uh, John Blanc sent a, a letter requesting a raise, essentially, to King Henry VIII, asking for more money to support himself. And um, eventually, when he was married, he, he became married, um, the king actually sent him a wedding gift, a wedding outfit. And so uh, the one depiction we have of him um, in artwork is in the Westminster tournament role of 1511. And he's uh, in, sitting on one of the horses, he's holding a trumpet, and he has a turban on. But as to who he was or where he went after his marriage, where he came from is not clear. There's still much more digging to be done. But what's so exciting is that uh, British historian Miranda Kaufman, she wrote an, an amazing book, Black Tudors, and she talks about how she found evidence of 200 to 300 Black men and women who were living in Tudor England at the same time in various roles, some as divers, some as uh, weavers, some as maids, and some as farmers. And she found uh, evidence of, of these Black men and women living in England through baptismal records, marriage records, um, because, at, of course, at the time, England was a very religious society. And so to uh, show that you were part of it, you know, you had to be baptized. And so the fact that they were allowed to be baptized really speaks to the fact that uh, racial discrimination was not a factor at the time, not yet at least. Mm. Amazing. What's the big reveal in this book about the Medici's? Oh, well, with the, the Medici's, which they're an amazing family too. It's very fun to talk about and write about and everyone loves to make movies about. But with Alessandro de' Medici, until very recently, scholars and academics really didn't want to focus in on the fact that many of his contemporaries had a nickname for him, which was Il Moro or the more, because in fact, his mother was African. So he was a, a biracial man. And what makes this so remarkable is that he became the first Duke of Florence. So he was the first biracial, you know, leader or ruler at the time in the 1500s. And so he was a very entertaining character, I would say. Many did not like him. Many used, you know, racial insults. And then others liked him. He was known to be a ladies' man, but he made a lot of uh, questionable decisions as a ruler. And unfortunately, he was assassinated in 1537. But his story is very interesting, especially noting the fact that, you know, many royal families like the Habsburgs can trace their lineage back to him mm. and, and his daughters and, and his, his uh, children. Oh, the power they wielded. There's a wonderful painting and story of a man nicknamed 
Baden. What's his story? Well, with Baden, what was so amazing about him, his portrait is is very fun. He was nicknamed Baden because it, that means really trickster. And he was known to be a very playful man. But he was born around the year of 1747 and unfortunately was kidnapped and given to the Queen of Sweden, Louisa Ulrika of Prussia. And so eventually he really was brought into the family. So he was like a, a, another child. He was adopted. And so he was raised alongside the royal children at the time. And he was given the best education possible and ended up being a helper in the royal family, an ambassador occasionally, a farmer, a collector of books. And so his uh, story is remarkable because, you know, for so long, the presence of Black people in, in courts and the fact that he was at such a high level, essentially acting as, as nobility, um, is such an amazing story. And there are many other uh, stories I mentioned in the book alongside his painting that Abram Gannibal, who was born in 1697, was also, like Baden, kidnapped from Cameroon and brought to Russia for Peter the Great, the Tsar at the time. And he also was adopted as a godson by uh, the Tsar, and he lived like a Russian noble and taught math, wrote a geometry book, and was given a large estate. And he actually, his great-grandson was Alexander Pushkin, which is such an amazing fact. So Alexander Pushkin had Black heritage that he also was proud of. And so there are all of these little clues that are just so fun, little historical tidbits. Zaria Ware, author of the book Black Art, The Audacious Legacy of Black Artists and Models in Western Art. We'll return with more of our conversation after a short break. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the author Zaria Ware. We've been discussing her new book, Black Art, the audacious legacy of black artists and models in Western art. Your case study of black England reflects the hypocrisy and contradictions of a nation that, together with Portugal, accounted for about 70% of all Africans transported to the Americas. What do the paintings and stories you include reveal about life for people of color in Britain? Well, for people of color in Britain, it's a very rich history, one that really isn't uh, focused on enough. Uh, many uh, students in the UK complain about this, the fact that England and, and the curriculum never really talks about the fact that there are just such rich histories from as early as Roman times, ancient Rome, into, of course, the case study here, Black England, which features the 18th century. And at this period of time, um, scholars estimate that there were about at least 10,000 
around to 15,000 Black individuals living in England in various positions. Of course, many worked as servants, as maids, as helpers, but then there were also many who had uh, started a trade, who who made wealth for themselves. Um, and so in this section, I feature many characters such as George Augustus Paul Greenbridge Tower, who was a violin prodigy, who was born around 1779, who has just the most amazing life story and the fact that the future, you know, King George the the fourth actually took him in and helped cultivate his craft. I also feature Dido Elizabeth Bell, who of course had a an amazing movie made about her life story. And so it was such an amazing thing that I was able to have this portrait of Dido and her cousin Elizabeth. And Dido was one of the only Black aristocrats at the time who was living in a, a wealthy manner, you know. And also I feature Ayuba Diallo, who was a wealthy religious cleric who was kidnapped and, and brought to England, who also has an amazing life story, very interesting life story. And so Black England was just a, one of my favorite sections because it, it really just details just just a smidgen or a, a small amount of the histories that were a part of the country at the time. And I hope will inspire many to, you know, do more research because, of course, with the popularity of shows such as Bridgerton or Sanditon, I, I think this is a section that's very worth, you know, researching and, and looking more into because it's not just a fantasy. There were characters who who lived in some ways, like in Bridgerton, like in shows such as Sanditon, that have, a, and so many of these you know, characters have a, a potential of also being a part of perhaps an entertainment show such as a TV show. Mm. I know you are also a poet. Are you familiar with Rita Dove's story, Sonata Mulatica? I am not. She wrote a collection of, well, I guess you would call it a story in verse about George Bridge Tower. Oh, wow. That is marvelous. And I cannot recommend it highly enough to you. And talk about television. She was watching a video. This was back in the early 90s, I think it was. A VHS cassette she was watching <laughs> I think it was Immortal Beloved, maybe. It was a historically inaccurate biography of Beethoven. <laughs> but she and her husband were watching it, and there was this scene that just had a very quick shot of men gathered in a tavern, and she asked her husband to rewind it. Wait, what? because she saw a black man depicted next to Beethoven, and that sent her down a rabbit hole. And that's how she learned about George Bridgetower, which I think, if not before, was in the very early days of the Internet. So she had to do a deep dive into original sources. But... I, I think you would enjoy it. It's just wonderful. Oh, I definitely will check it out. And I, I think just the the mental image of picturing George, you know, with Beethoven because they were friends for a for a while. It, it's amazing, you know. It's it's very exciting because we for so long have pictured you know Beethoven in a purely not diverse space. So to to know that he had a friend who was black adds a little more spice to his story. And the same goes for um, Joseph Bologna, who also was a famous superstar violinist. And the fact that Mozart kind of hated him, he viewed him as a rival. So I think those two stories are just very, very cool, I, I should say. The fact that we have these two historical mavericks that we always talk about, Mozart and Beethoven, and the fact that they had Black figures in their lives. One, of course, who viewed him as a friend and the other who did not. Oh, well, Beethoven not only thought of 
George Bridgetower as a friend. He thought he was the greatest violinist he'd ever mm -hmm. heard. But wouldn't you know it, they got into an argument about a young woman. And I think Beethoven thought she was interested in him when she was interested in the much younger man, in <laughs> fact, the violinist. So that's how Beethoven's dedication to what would have been his greatest work for solo violin and piano for the Kreutzer Sonata would have been the Bridge Tower Sonata and how much different Bridge Tower's life might have been, at least treated through history, if they hadn't gotten into that spat. That's so unfortunate. It, it's always about the woman or a girl. <laughs> but it's so unfortunate. And vanity. <laughs> yes, yes. So that probably, you know, it could have sent him on another trajectory for sure, having that, or at least having more people today in modern times remembering his name, if that had been named after him, instead of someone who never even really wanted to play, you know, the, the piece unfortunately. But you point out also the important fact that here were black people visible at the Habsburg court. I mean, in Vienna, this wasn't totally out of the ordinary. It was unusual, but it happened. And so much of, of this has been erased, as you bring out in the book. I especially appreciate the section of your book that focuses on Amsterdam. Where do black people figure in the art of Rembrandt and paintings that are part of the Dutch Golden Age? So what's so exciting about this section is that despite the fact that in the Netherlands, of course, the Dutch had such a huge hand, of course, in the transatlantic slave trade, at the same time, we see a small group of Black men and women creating a community in Amsterdam. And so many of them lived in the same neighborhood. It was near Jodenbrustraat, which is still there today. And they all collaborated. They witnessed the, the baptisms of each other or the marriages of each other, signed uh, contracts for each other, did business with each other. And so it's so exciting to see and why they were featured largely in many of the paintings of Dutch golden artists was because they were nearby. Modeling was a career choice, a good career choice to have steady income, especially since there was so much art coming out of, such, of, of a small area at such a fast rate. Um, and so with Rembrandt, a historian, Elmer Colfin, did extensive research and found that he created at least 12 paintings and eight etchings of Black people. And so that makes him one of the one of the European artists who really who made the most paintings or artwork of diverse peoples at the time. And so in this small area, many artists such as Rembrandt and then also Rubin creating work featuring Black people. And then we see uh, one of the most, one of my favorite paintings was of Don Miguel de Castro, who was an ambassador sent from King of the Congo, who came to Amsterdam and two of his servants also had their had, had portraits made of them. And so these portraits are really a treasure in Black history because we not only have their faces, but we know their names, we know their histories. Because unfortunately with many of the paintings in black art we don't know all the backgrounds we can guess we can make uh, educated guesses but um, with don miguel we know exactly who he was and where he came from and then i love the case study that's a part of amsterdam amsterdam which is what goes around keeps going because one of my favorite portraits is of isabella i just think it's it's so beautiful and so gorgeous and it depicts on page 80 a young girl who's 12 years old at the time, Simone Maris, painted her in around 1906. And her name wasn't known until very recently. In 2020, the Rijksmuseum found in uh, Maris's artist records her name and also found a black and white photo of her in real life, the reference photo. So it's very exciting. And now they're 
doing an active search to, you know, try to figure out what her family name would have been, uh, what her history is, where she's from, and where she might have gone. But I still think even if we don't know anymore in the future, it's still such a treasure. The fact that we have this young girl being depicted with a fan, being depicted with rich clothing and a rich setting with a bonnet um, in such a beautiful way, a very positive way which is so unlike what we're used to seeing, of course, in the U.S. So I think that's yes. that would be one of my most favorite paintings of all. Oh, she is so beautiful and endearing with that expression. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and if you are just tuning in, I've been speaking with the author's area Ware about her new book, Black art. I guess the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam deserves credit for research into this. And I think what I gained from this section, from reading this section in your book, was the degree to which even the earlier artists, Rembrandt and his contemporaries of the Dutch Golden Age, how their depictions of black people are not exoticized or or trivialized. They really reveal the beauty and humanity of their subjects, I think. Is, is that part of what you took away from your research? Yes, I would definitely agree uh, with that. I would say before, you know, racialized identities were really cemented during the, the Age of Enlightenment and, of course, during the slave trade in certain countries. The idea of race was very, it really wasn't as we know it to be today. And so to be a Black man, for instance, going back to medieval times, to be a Black man, to visit a city in France, perhaps, or a village in France, depending on if it was a big city or a capital city, maybe the people might have seen maybe one or two Black men or African people, maybe a few more, or maybe none at all. But if they came across an African man, it wasn't an, an instant view of to see them and to say, oh, that's a slave, because that hadn't happened yet. And so in many ways, to depict a Black man or a Black woman in a more positive light, it wasn't as radical as we would view it today, because at the time, they just viewed them as humans. And in reality, too, in the medieval age, many factors, you know, separated people. And in many ways, it was about religion. I mean, if you were Muslim, if you were Christian, of course, we know about the bloody wars that happened because of religion. Um, in many ways, you were separated in that way, not so much as in race. And in ancient Rome, we see that as well. Recently, some archaeologists have found uh, in England many bones um, that belonged to African men and women who were buried with rich clothing, rich one woman, the ivory bangle lady, they called her because she was found with ivory bangles, which speaks to her wealth, was a, a biracial woman. And so we found so much evidence of the fact that, you know, Black people were a part of the daily comings and goings of the time period. So nothing was cemented as in the way that we view it today. So that's what's so exciting to me as well. And, and I hope inspires more investigation from Black I I wanted it to, you know, to show the reader and to inspire the reader to see that Blackness, you know, at the time, it, it, it was very different. And in many ways, uh, Black people were able to live a full life, even during uh, the slave trade, even in countries such as uh, the Netherlands or Portugal, who had a, a, a heavy hand in it, were still able to live their life. And in Europe, European slavery was very different. So understanding the nuance of that, that in Europe, to be freed within a generation was very common and slavery was not it, it didn't depend entirely on your race and so you would have in europe black men and women or african men and women and white men and women who were also enslaved together in the same households and so there's just so many different lenses that really have been obscured and so you know just taking a step back and being able to see you know just how life was not to place our biases currently that we have today on historical study, I think, really is the, the goal or what's most important, I think, right now.
Among my favorite images in this book is a painting from the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Would you describe Two Musicians by Robert Lee McCameron? Oh, yes, that's one of my, my favorites. And um, actually, I had made the, the decision to name it to musicians because in reality, currently, it is still, I believe, two Negro musicians, unfortunately. Oh, really? So, yeah, so I removed that title and just titled it to musicians. But I just found it, you know, it, it, it speaks to the humanity of the, the figures. I really appreciated the fact that we, we were able to see two black faces smiling, having so much joy, you know, radiating joy, really. And with the expertise of the painter of, you know, the light shining on their faces, despite the dark background, I just loved this painting. And I really, it was important to me to have a section just titled Faces to be very simple because many of these, these portraits that are a part of Faces, I really wanted to take the reader on a journey. We were going on a journey together just to see these men and women who had lives, who had families, who had hopes and dreams, to look them in the eye and just to imagine. Because for so long, Black figures have not been given the benefit, excuse me, of the doubt. And so when we looked at a Black figure in the past, we would say, oh, well, we already know their story. They were probably enslaved or they're impoverished. So I wanted to take that away from this experience and instead say, now I can imagine and look at their lives with excitement and positivity just as much as any other white sitter that we would look at when we go to a museum. Hmm. The Artists Before the Harlem Renaissance could be its own book. Yes. If we have to look at only one figure because of time, what's remarkable about Robert Selden Duncanson? Well, what's so remarkable about Robert is the fact that his family's trade was house painting. He decided at a young age that he wanted to become a painter. And eventually he settled on landscape painting, which is, was a great idea because everyone loved his landscapes. And eventually he became a superstar. He was traveling around Europe um, selling his artworks. At the time of his unfortunate death or early death from illness, he was selling artworks for almost as much as $300,000 today, which would have been 15000 at his time. And so at a time period living during the late 19th century, Despite being a Black man and being denied entry into art school, he worked with artists, friends that he was able to have. And really, he, he taught himself. He became a self-taught artist, rather. And what makes that so amazing is that he created these beautiful landscape paintings that really have the, the influences of European romanticism that are just so beautiful, depicting his trips to, to Scotland and beyond. And so he was really one of the first. And so Robert begins the story in part two, and then readers will be able to learn about Edward Mitchell Bannister, who firstly was a, a ship cook. He lived in Canada, moved to Boston. Um, the fact that he was able to start an amazing art career, then you learn about Edmonia Lewis, who was this um, amazing trailblazer who became the first Black woman to sculpt and live in Rome. And then to finish off with this section, you also learn about Henry Osua Tanner, who's this amazing landscape painter who has beautiful works that are right now in major museums, such as the Louvre, the Musée d'Orsay. And so all of the, their stories are just so, so beautiful, so moving, so inspiring. And there's just so much more to learn about these figures as well. And so by no means is this exhaustive, no, by no means is this all of their history. And so after reading these, this section, I implore readers to learn more about them, to search their artworks, to find even more online, and essentially just to Google them and see just how amazing their lives really were and to fill in any blanks that they might have. Zaria hmm. Ware, this has been a marvelous education and a delight to talk with you. Thank you so very much for speaking with me about Black art. Well, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. I, I could talk about this all day. It's, it's very exciting for me.
as well. Very aware. Author of Black Art, the audacious legacy of Black artists and models in Western art. More information about the book is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll listen back to my conversation with the filmmaker Stanley Nelson. His two recent PBS documentaries explore the lives of abolitionists Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass with further contemporary meaning. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Two giants of American history who radically changed the course of our nation for the better of humanity in their fight to end slavery are subjects of PBS documentaries, Harriet Tubman Visions of Freedom and Becoming Frederick Douglass are streaming now on PBS Passport. I spoke with the director and producer Stanley Nelson when the films initially aired on WABE-TV in October. I began by asking why he wanted to make a film about these famous abolitionists. Well, I, I think that, that you know, there's, there's always more to say about uh, these incredible Americans. But also, you know, there's a lot of myth uh, about both Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. And there's uh, a lot that's not known about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass. I don't think that, that there's kind of the definitive documentary that would make it so that that you know we would beg off and, and, and not make those films. So I, I think they're just, you know, two amazing American stories and um we're very honored to be able to tell them. Maryland was complicated. I mean I'm sure it still is, but literally free people of color lived very close to enslaved people. And that was Harriet Tubman's situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that for me, entering in, into making these films, that was one of the most fascinating things about Maryland at that time. You know, Maryland was a state that, that was called the Upper South. So it was very different, you know, very different kind of enslavement from enslavement in Georgia or Alabama or, or somewhere in, in the deeper South. I think that, that Maryland had uh, 90,000 enslaved African-Americans, but it also had 60,000 uh, free African-Americans, and and they would work side by side. And, and so a person like Harriet Tubman that was enslaved in Maryland would have known free people. She, so she would have known uh, what freedom was. She would have known what freedom looks like. In fact, uh, she actually married a free man. So, I, I you know, it, it's really interesting and fascinating and complicated because even though Maryland was different, it was still enslavement. Right? It was still the, the fact that your body was owned by somebody else. One thing brought out in the film that was articulated in a way I'd not encountered in reading about Harriet Tubman before that, that made quite an impression on me in your film is that she lived with a disability. That's how it's described. She endured this horrific injury, brutally inflicted on her as a young girl trying to protect someone. And that resulted in seizures, visions. Would you talk about the title of the film and its multiple meanings or its layers of meaning? Yeah, the, the title of the film is Harry Tubman, Visions of Freedom. You know, again, it, it, as you said, it, it's, it's kind of a layered meaning. You know, when Harry Tubman was a young girl through a, a kind of a freak accident, uh, she was in a store and uh, another uh, enslaved uh, young man was being chased and the store owner picked up a, a heavy weight that was used for, you know, weighing flour or, or, or cornmeal or other things and, and threw it 
at the guy and um, it missed him and, hit, and struck Harry Tubman in the head. Um, and she was severely injured. She was concussed. But also after that, she for the rest of her life, she would have visions. And she felt that those were visions from a higher power. And the higher power in many instances, she felt was instructing her in what to do, to go back down South after she had escaped from enslavement, but to go back, to go back to Maryland and free other people. And so visions of freedom. Yes. Would you talk about the importance of the AME Church for Frederick Douglass? Yeah, I think the, you know, AME Church was, was hugely important. Again, you know, that, that we had free African-Americans um, with enslaved African-Americans. So in some ways, the church was, was there, there were free people in the church. And, and one of the things we wanted to do was really talk a little bit about Frederick Douglass's uh, first wife, who was instrumental in his visions of freedom and in, in, instrumental in Frederick Douglass escaping to freedom. You know, he, she told him that you know, you're not made to be a slave. You know, you're not, this is, you're not made to be enslaved, that, that there's another life. She was a free woman, and but she said, you know, we can, we can escape this condition. And uh, she urged him to, to head north. His gift for poetic language and the power of his delivery. You bring this out in the film. One scholar says in the 19th century, oratory was the equivalent of going to the movies. How was Frederick Douglass able to spread the word through his speaking appearances? Well, one of the things that that's discovered early on, you know, he's asked to speak at an abolitionist movement, as, as you mentioned in Nantucket, early on. And, and one of the things they realize that, that he's just an incredible speaker you know, that his ex direct experience with enslavement and his eloquence is just invaluable. So he becomes a speaker for abolitionists. And, and again, as, as you mentioned, going to hear people speak was like going to the movies. Obviously, there were no movies, there was no TV. But you could go and you could hear speakers, and, you know, from, from other parts of the world, from other parts of, of the country, um, speaking about, about issues. And Frederick Douglass became a highly sought after and incredibly uh, well-traveled speaker, where he traveled all over the North and finally to England, speaking about the horrors of enslavement. Director and producer Stanley Nelson, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, and Becoming Frederick Douglass are streaming now on PBS Passport. You can hear our entire conversation from last October on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Theater Emery has reimagined the Pulitzer Prize-winning play Our Town for the 21st century with families who speak Spanish and Mandarin. Co-director Marguerite Hanna wanted to highlight the makeup of the Emory community by incorporating these two languages. This is the first time that our town will use Mandarin Chinese. Here, she explained why she wanted the production to use multiple languages. The multilingual choice for us sits solely in our desire to find and explore contemporary relevance in today's society for Thornton Wilder's Our Town. At its core, the pure essence of our town has always been an exploration of what we as citizens of the world and of life itself miss because of our failure to appreciate the value of, of the small details of our everyday lives. Our town centers around a fictional small town in New Hampshire at the turn of the 20th century. The play examines the everyday lives of the town's citizens over the period of a decade. Tom Zang portrays George Gibbs, one of the main characters. Oh, Ma, we have a lot of things to buy. 
Rebecca 怎么有那么多钱？她钱比我多。Gibbs is the archetypal all-American boy who ends up marrying his high school crush. English, Spanish, and Mandarin supertitles are projected next to the stage, so audiences can follow along. The show is on stage at the Schwartz Center for the Performing Arts through February 26th. More information is available on their website, theater.emory.edu. On another note, Indigo Girl Amy Ray will perform with her solo band at the Variety Playhouse on February 25th. They have a new record called "If It All Goes South." You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m. My conversation with the composer and pianist Conrad Tao, ahead of his performance with the Atlanta Symphony this weekend. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the author Zaria Ware about her new book Black Art, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website. wabe.org/citylights there you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to city lights on your schedule city lights senior producer is kim troes our producers are summer evans and janine etter and our engineer is shelly canavy I'm your host Lois Wrightsis and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. I'm Mark Kendall, and I'm David Perdue, and we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at wabe.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig.、Mm-hmm. WABE. <laughs> Sounds like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts.